Well, as some of you may, some of you may know this, that of many years in my early 20s, I spent a lot of years walking what's called the Boulevard of Broken Dreams. Uh, I'm not trying to be melodramatic, that's just what we all nickname Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. Uh, every year, thousands and thousands, maybe even 10,000s, mostly of young, mostly young men and women descend upon Hollywood, move into the area with dreams of making it big, wanting to be actors or producers or actresses or uh, directors or even rock stars. Uh, the unfortunate reality is the overwhelming majority of us never made it anywhere, which is why it's been nicknamed the Boulevard of Broken Dreams. Uh, I can laugh about it now. It was just such a different life, different world, a whole other lifetime ago. But, you know, the reality is it was a very bitter pill to swallow, something that had been uh, me and my band, our guys, uh, high school friends, our passion, our dream, something that we made sacrifices for, left family and friends, moved thousands of miles to pursue something uh, that we, we thought we were certainly going to make it, that this was going to be our life's work, to watch all of that elude us without, without even being able to do anything about it, even though we were good at it, even though we had a shot um, to watch Watch it slip past and the dream basically to die. And what do you do when the thing you were living for and, and maybe it's hard for many of you to relate. Maybe you never moved to Hollywood to try to pursue it in the entertainment industry, but you can fill in the blank with whatever it is. What do you do when the very thing you were pursuing for that defined your life never materializes? What do you do then? I mean, when you have defined yourself by this thing and it falls apart, what next? Now, most of you, I uh, can't see too many that probably pursued trying to be a rock star, but you never know. I mean, maybe it was something more reasonable. Nick, Nick tried to be okay. So uh, other than me and Nick, uh, maybe you tried something more reasonable, right? You wanted to be a business owner, uh, an entrepreneur, um, and that didn't happen. Or maybe you wanted to be a professional ball player, a professional surfer, and that never materialized. Maybe for you, it wasn't something so self-aggrandizing or economic. Maybe it was just something real, just simple, like you wanted to be happily married. And for whatever reason, Mr. or Mrs. Wright never came along, or Mr. or Mrs. Wright turned out to be all wrong. Maybe for you, you wanted to do something that was really God-centered at its core, and you wanted to be a missionary. I mean, what could be more self-effacing and God-glorifying and sacrificing than to be a missionary, but even that didn't materialize? Maybe for you, it was more modest. Maybe you just wanted to be a, a, a good Bible study leader and help people mature in their faith in Christ, but nobody wants to listen. Maybe you just want to be a good, helpful community group leader and help encourage people, build community, but nobody shows up. Like I said, you fill in the blank. You live long enough, and sooner or later, there's going to be something in your life that you're going to experience your joy being deflated and being profoundly discouraged. The thing you thought was so important seems to be never within your grasp. Sometimes in life, it seems like our situations are out to take our joy. Sometimes it seems like it's other people. The question is, how do we maintain joy when everything in life seems determined to take it from us? And that's why this passage is so powerful. See, in first Philippians, in Philippians, <laughs> this is the sovereignty of God working itself out right now. In a Philippians 1, verses 12 through 21, Paul, in, in a very real way, Paul is revealing the key to maintaining joy in our lives. 
Because the way Paul words this, he says, regardless of your situation, joy is not defined by the circumstances in your life. Joy is, is determined by the definition of life. Let me say that again because it's so not how we live. Joy is not determined by the circumstances of your life. Joy is determined by your definition of life. That's what Paul is getting at here. So in these 10 verses, what we're gonna see is the reality of life, we're gonna see the reality of life, and we're gonna see real life. Now let me explain that. It wasn't that I, wasn't, I couldn't come up with a different point and title for each point. I mean them to be that way. First we're gonna talk about the reality of life. Notice the air quotes. This is the life that we all exist in. It's the world that we're bumping up against all the time. It's the reality where my dream of becoming a musician, a professional musician, a rock star, never materialized. But it's, it, it's like, um, like reality TV, if you ever watch that. It's, it, it's supposed to be kind of real, but it really isn't at all. Right? That's, that's the reality we exist in. Then there's the reality of life, no air quotes. This is the reality because this is as God sees and understands the world we live in and what truly is important. And how we understand one from the other is all dependent on how we define what real life is. And so our three points this morning is the reality of life, the reality of life, and real life. Now, I was talking to our elders this morning because I was thinking, you know, a better preacher probably could have nicely parsed out our passage, say this verse goes with these things and this and so and so. But as I thought about it, you know, reality, this reality and real reality, they're always bleeding and overlapping each other, and so that's how I'm gonna present it. So it's not gonna be kind of a clear, these verses is this, these verses is that, like last week was really beautiful, wasn't it? Verses three through eight, Paul's thankful for his, the partnership of the Philippians. Verses nine through 11, he talks about the prayer, the content of that prayer that he mentioned in verse four. It breaks down really easily. This one, not so much. So we're gonna talk about them as we experience them, all overlapping simultaneously. So we're gonna have one slide up there. If you're a note taker, all three points are gonna be up there and, and they're just gonna be there for the whole thing. I'm always talking so much that anytime there's a void, everyone wonders what's going wrong. This morning, these 10 verses from verse 12 through, actually really through 26, it, it signals a shift in the book of Philippians. We're not gonna go to verse 26, we'll leave that for next week. Uh, but we're gonna look at verses 12 through 21, and really this whole section though, uh, from 12 to 26, it's Paul telling the Philippians about how he's doing. You remember the first part of chapter one was Paul encouraging them, speaking of how grateful he is for them. Now he shifts gear to share with them what's going on in his life. He gives a report on what he's doing. And we'll be looking at the first 10 of those verses this morning. So we'll start with verse 12. Notice what Paul says. I want you to know, brothers, let's stop right there. Okay, first of all, we need to ask an important question to understand what's going on here. Who is Paul? Now, if, if you've been a Christian for a while, if you've been reading the Bible, you probably, you probably know the answer to that question, so there's a chance that you're just gonna blow past really quickly this, this introductory uh, verses here and, and actually miss the point I'm trying to bring out. If you're not a Christian and you don't know who Paul is, this is really gonna be a helpful introduction to you. Paul here, writing from a Roman prison, writing to the church at Philippi, to the Philippians, is, is arguably next to Jesus Christ himself, the second most important person in the New Testament. 
You see, Paul was the chief architect of the early church. Paul was the pioneer. Paul was the church planter supreme. He was the singular force behind the expansion of the Christian faith in the then known world. Wherever Paul went, either riots or revivals would break out. People would get converted, disciples would get matured, and a church would be planted. Rinse and repeat. That story is the background of 13 of the 27 New Testament epistles. So Paul was pretty significant and pretty successful. And here he is, Paul, in the capital of the world. He's in Rome, and he's chained to a guard. Actually, many guards. 24 hours a day, probably in four-hour shifts, by an 18-inch steel leash. No crowds, no huge speeches, no, no thundering sermons to proclaim, no citywide riots, but at the same time, no citywide revivals. The spokesman for God at the center of power of the world. And he's locked up, almost forgotten, in an obscure prison, and the only people who get to know him are these imperial guards. He can't even use the bathroom without asking permission. And even when he does, he can't do that without a guard standing over him while he relieves himself. Let me ask you, if you were Paul, would you be frustrated? You see, this is where if you, if you are a Christian and you know the story, sometimes we know the story so well, we blow past some of the most significant realities. We think that, oh, of course Paul's rejoicing, right? He's in the Philippians because this is what God is doing. And we think that's the way Paul understood it all the way from the beginning. But as you know something about Paul, this was his vision and passion. He was the church planter. He was the apostle to the Gentiles, bringing the gospel to the world. And here he is at Rome, and it's not happening. If you were Paul, would you feel a little anxious that everything that you worked for, everything you thought God was doing was slipping away from you, and you literally are being held back and can do nothing about it? Can you imagine what it feels like to feel like everything you had hoped for and wished for is not going to take place? So here he is, Paul, in a demeaning, demoralizing situation. To say nothing about his church planting career, that's just forget about that. He's now facing execution to boot. What does he say to the Philippians? This is the part we're familiar with. What does he say? He says it primarily in verses 18 and then 19, 20, and 21. He says, by life or by death, I rejoice. I am unmoved. This ain't no big thing. The gospel is at work. The thing that matters is still taking place. Now, see, we all assume that comes from Paul, but we forget that probably wasn't how he expected things to turn out. We forget that if your job is a church planner and you can't plan a church, how do you feel about yourself? What in the world? His dreams come crashing down. His life in jeopardy. His career tanked. And he's saying, I am unmoved. More than that, he's saying, I rejoice. 
What's happening? You see, Paul has a definition of life that enables him to face all these circumstances and more. Paul defines life in a way that enables him to face the crashing down of his dreams, the the desire and passion being unfulfilled, what he thought God was doing to be taken from him, and he can still rejoice. You see, Paul has a view of reality that shapes his view of reality. Notice his next line back in verse 12. It says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And then in verses 13 and 14, he mentions two ways this is happening. In verse 13, he says, everyone's hearing about the gospel. These Praetorian guards, they're hearing about the gospel. Verse 14, the Christians in Rome, they're speaking the gospel. And both of these are happening because I'm in jail. Because of my imprisonment, everyone knows I'm here because of Christ. And because I'm in prison and I'm suffering, it's encouraged the brothers and sisters in Rome, and so they're speaking the word of Christ. It's interesting that Paul has this perspective, even in the book of Ephesians in chapter four, verse one, when he is in another Roman prison, uh, we're not sure if it's the same time period, he doesn't call himself a prisoner of Rome. He never calls himself a prisoner of Rome, actually. He calls himself a prisoner of who? Prisoner of Christ. You see, Paul understood that he could not escape his circumstance as bitter as it was. But interesting, neither could his circumstances escape Paul. Friend, no matter what hard place we find ourselves in, God can use us to advance the gospel. Think about this, in God's providence, the most hardened, battle-tested, cynical, hardened Roman soldiers of the legions, the Praetorian guards, who would probably never go to a synagogue, never have to mix it up with the rabble of the Christians or whatever, the most hardened of these Roman soldiers are literally chained to the most passionate, persuasive evangelist the church has ever known. I just love the way God does that. Now, the application from that should not be that this means every time you sit in an airplane, you are obligated to share the gospel to the person sitting next to you because they can't go anywhere, right? That's not the application. But it is to say that our circumstances are providential. It is to say that the situations we find ourselves are not accidental. Now, you may not be chained to a Roman soldier, But what other circumstance or situation in your life do you find yourself tied to? Are you tied to the the desk at the office? Do you feel yourself constrained by having little children at home? Maybe you're a student that's just tied to your class schedule. Maybe you are a school teacher that is tied by a secular system that won't allow you to proclaim the gospel so easily. Maybe you have an illness that chains you to a bed. Wherever you are, You're not there by accident. You are there by God's providence. And he can use that situation if you can see the reality behind the reality like Paul so beautifully did. Renowned um, Bible scholar Peter O'Brien, none none of you can be surprised if two people know who he is, so don't worry about who he is or not, but he's one of my heroes. He was a a Bible scholar by the name of Peter Peter O'Brien. His family, neither one of his parents were Christians. He didn't come from a Christian household. And his, but his family lived next to an older woman who was a, a, just had a wonderful, beautiful, simple faith, but she suffered from an incurable disease. 
but she suffered gloriously. She never complained, never got bitter, always sought to serve the O'Briens, always had a kind word to say to the children, always tried to encourage the mother and father. O'Brien's mother was just Im impacted by this, this testimony because she had no category for someone suffering in such a beautiful manner. So needless to say, after living next to this woman for quite some time, O'Brien's mother trusted Christ. And humanly speaking, this simple suffering lady was the means by which God brought salvation to the O'Brien household. Eventually, young Peter became a believer as well. He went on to seminary and got himself a PhD. He then went on to India to become a, a missionary to the, India, to, the, to the nation of India. Years later, he'd moved to Australia and teach at Moore Theological Seminary uh, and, and teach the gospel for years. He would write articles and books and commentaries, extraordinary commentaries, one that I use every week on the New Testament as we study Philippians. Now, suppose if you sat down with this woman, this simple suffering woman and said, okay, here's the deal. If you will glorify Christ in your suffering every day, then as a consequence, Indians will be converted. Generations of pastors and scholars will be trained to teach the Bible, and countless sermons, including the one I'm preaching right now, will be preached. What do you think this, this simple suffering woman would say? Of course. Of course I'll endure these things. Yes, I'll do these things for these very reasons. You're sharing them with me. But here's the reality. She never knew any of that would happen. This simple suffering woman would have no idea that 30 years later, because of her witness of Christ, some young man would write an amazing commentary on the Greek New Testament, and that would be preached in a church in Laguna Hills. Friends, whatever your circumstance, whatever your suffering, whatever the disappointment, maybe it, is the, maybe it is the collapse of your career. Maybe it is that your kids did not turn out the way you wanted them. Maybe it is that you are at a stage of life where life just is taking more from you than it's giving to you. Maybe the relationship you were banking on just went sideways. Our message from Philippians 1 here is that we can trust a loving, sovereign God who sees the whole picture. And even in our setbacks, he can use it to promote and advance something much larger than ourselves. The question, though, the challenge for us is how do we do that? Right? We see Paul beautifully demonstrating this for us. So let's skip to verse 18, the second half of verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice, Paul writes, verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, verse 20, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Notice Paul says here, he says, I know this will turn out for my deliverance. Now remember, we know from the book of Acts that Paul longed to go to Rome to preach the gospel. That was the hub of the world. That was the, the center of power. That was the, the, the superpower of the ancient world. He wanted to get to Rome to bring the gospel, but he didn't intend to do it like this, talking to a handful of imperial guards as he's using the restroom who probably don't care about who he is. 
who probably treat him very badly because stories about Paul and the riots, they think he's an insurrectionist or a terrorist or something like that. This is not how he intended it to go. But Paul knows, as we should if you're reading your Bible, that one of the gospel motifs that God does is that he consistently takes our suffering and our circumstances that went sideways and not in spite of those, but because of those, uses it to advance a greater good that we could never see. All right, so you think of the story of Joseph. You're familiar with that? The end chapters of Genesis, as now he is, after years of slavery and betrayal and misunderstanding, he becomes the second most powerful man in Egypt, and he's confronted with his brothers, and he says, you meant it all when they sold him into slavery, when they abandoned him, you meant it for evil. But God meant it for good that I should deliver our people from certain death. Or think of Esther, how she was taken from her family, her, her uncle, and forced to be in the king's harem and effectively be a concubine. You realize that Esther was a concubine. And yet she would be raised to become the queen and to deliver her people from certain death. Neither one of these wanted to be a slave or a concubine. But God brought beauty from the ashes of their lives, hopes and dreams being destroyed. He brought about his plans, not in spite of what happened to them, but because of what happened to them. And if we're, we're tracking the biblical story, the theology through the scriptures, this should make perfect sense because what's the greatest story of, of, of betrayal and abandonment and things going sideways that actually turn out to be beautiful? Jesus himself, the Lord of glory, innocent, perfect, loving and kind, betrayed, abandoned, forsaken, tortured, and crucified. And that's the very thing God uses to redeem humanity. So as we look at Joseph and Esther and Jesus and many more, we shouldn't be surprised to look at our lives and say, wait a minute, this is a gospel motif. God loves to take the, 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 the heartache and the suffering of our lives and he's actually gonna do something amazing in the midst of that. We shouldn't be surprised if it happened to our master, it's gonna happen to us. Paul knew that. And in a sense, in verse 19, there's a sense he's saying, I wonder, I just wonder how God's gonna turn this around. How, where is God in the midst of all this? Now let's be careful here, because sometimes we can, as Christians, if you're a Christian, you wanna be a, a faithful Christian, so you get a little too stoic, and you kinda deny your suffering and go, well, you know, God's just doing what he's doing because he ruined my life just so I could share the gospel with that mailman, so that's, I guess, what it's all worth it, huh? That's not what's happening. I don't think Paul would think that God derailing his church planning career so that he could share with a couple guards is sufficient to, do, to basically wipe out his career as the apostle to the Gentiles. I, I, that's not, I don't think that's what's going on. I don't think Paul is saying, hey, all right, I'm at Rome and I can't talk to anybody but a couple of these guys who really don't like me and yes, Jesus is awesome and everything's gonna work out. I don't think that's what he's getting at here. But I think he is saying, I think verse 19 will unpack it a little bit, is, but I, but I wonder if I can get a glimpse, I wonder if I can just see a corner of what God is doing. If I could just see a little bit of how God's working in this situation, knowing full well, he, he is not gonna get to see it all, we never do. But seeing a corner, a glimpse is enough because he knows God's pattern of working. And while he may not understand all of what this means, he said, if I can just catch a glimpse, it's probably gonna be enough. 
Friends, if you go into the difficulties of your life knowing and asking, how will God turn this around? Knowing that, hey, if I just see a corner of it, I don't have to see the whole thing because we never do, but knowing that God somehow is going to work this around, you're going to be on top. When, when the cards come crashing down, you're not going to be devastated and destroyed. You're actually going to be okay. You're not going to get knocked down. You're going to realize this is a gospel motif. This is how he works. I thought it was going to work out this way. God's working on his kingdom. I thought it was going to be my kingdom, but no, my kingdom's not his kingdom, so they're not the same. How is he going to make this happen? I don't know, but if I can catch just a glimpse, I'm okay. Knowing that God works this way because most times we never get to see the whole story. And notice how Paul says to the Philippians, through your prayers. I actually wonder if the prayer he, that we looked at last week, verses nine through 11, how Paul said, this is how I'm praying for you, was kind of one of these passive ways of telling them, this is also how I hope you pray for me. Through your prayers and the help of Christ, this will turn out. What's the this? All the injustice, the suffering, the, the possibility of he could never plant another church, the possibility that he might be executed, that his head might be taken off, and, and that actually is a sign of mercy from Rome, that they would just behead you and kill you easily. All of this would work out for my deliverance, he says. Maybe through your prayers and with the work of Christ, this is going to turn out for my deliverance. Now, what's the impression you get from verse 19 when he says um, that, that phrase, my deliverance? If you're like me, reading through it for the first couple of times, you're thinking it means uh, maybe I'll get out of this prison and I won't be executed. I'll get to keep my head and we're all good, right? But if you read carefully in verse 20, that tells us that that interpretation's not correct because he says, whether by my life or my death, I want Christ honored. And then later in chapter one, Paul's wrestling with the virtue of staying alive and being useful or being executed and to be with Christ. So verse 19 here cannot mean, my deliverance means I get to get out of jail. I actually think what Paul has in mind is something altogether more helpful in the larger context of understanding how to deal with life, when, how, to, how to keep our joy when our dreams get crushed. So here, let's look at verse 19. This word deliverance, this word here is the same word, the same Greek word behind it, soteria, that we translate as salvation. Okay, so you're familiar with that word if you're a Christian. Of the 44 times this word appears, all 42 times it's translated as salvation. This is the only exception, this in Acts 27.34, that soteria is, is translated something else. In Acts 27, it's translated as strength. Here, it's translated as deliverance. Now, if you have like a New International Version at home or a New American Standard, or if you have an ESV Study Bible, you might see like an asterisk, and the translators put the word salvation near deliverance or in a footnote because they're, they're, they're trying to wrestle through, this is how we historically have translated it, but this doesn't seem to fit the overall context. So they're trying to be consistent with translation, but also show you, wait a minute, linguistically, most times this means salvation. So what Paul is saying here is that through your prayers and your help, the help from Christ, this whole situation will turn out for my salvation. Okay, so let me explain how that helps us see this more clearly. I gotta give you a little theology to do that, but you're, you're a good church, you, you, get, you get into this, so you're okay. So the word salvation is, is a, a word that 
not just linguistically, but theologically has many tenses to it. So there's a past tense, present tense, future tense of salvation. Now there's, um, I have been saved, right, past tense. I have been saved from the penalty of my sin, right? This is what we call the doctrine of justification, past tense. I've been saved. There is a present tense, are being saved. So I'm not, I've been saved from the penalty of sin. Now I'm being saved from the power of sin. I'm no longer given to the same kinds of lusts and desires that I once had. I'm learning to love things that I should and hate things that I should. I'm being saved. It's the doctrine of sanctification. So you got past tense, you got present tense, and then there's the future tense, will be saved, where I'm gonna be with God in heaven with all the saints, and that's the doctrine of glorification. So salvation has these tenses, and a lot of times in English, we see the word. Sometimes it says had been saved, being saved, will be saved. Sometimes it says salvation. But this has that idea in it, and sometimes it has to be the context that tells us one from the other. Now, in reading Paul, do you think he's meaning, because of this, I will be, or I've been saved, justified from my sins? Probably not, because then we'd all have to be, have some serve jail time to be justified for our sins, right? Do you think Paul is saying, I will be saved because of all this, which means I get to go to heaven in glorification? Probably not, unless he thinks I'm gonna get my head cut off and that's how I'm gonna be saved, but none of you are reading it that way, right? So that's probably not what he means. Paul is probably saying, I will, I am being saved right now, present tense. That what is happening to me is turning out for my salvation. Notice, he doesn't say, in spite of this, it's turning out for my salvation. He's saying, because this, it will turn out for my salvation. Because of what's happening, this is turning out for my salvation. Paul is saying, I rejoice because in this situation, God is saving me. God is making me the man I want to be. You see, Paul is not just saying that God can turn this situation around. God can turn Paul around. That's really important. It's not just that I'm looking for God, how you turn the situation around. He says, no, I'm looking for how you're turning me around. Friends, God is not just working in our situations as much as God is at work in you, in the midst of those situations. Through what is happening, Paul says, I am being saved. I'm being sanctified. I'm learning to value the right things, to hold the right perspective, to define life correctly. I used to think I was the apostles of the Gentiles. It's all about my church planting career. That's what it's about, and I'm realizing I'm wrong. That's not what life's about. I'm being saved because I'm starting to see reality in reality, and he rejoices. That's a hard lesson to learn, but it's a powerful lesson to learn that Paul, by the way, has learned all his life. If you were here when we did the introduction to the book of Philippians, isn't that how the church got started? Paul didn't intend to plant it. Remember, the second missionary journey started with misstep after misstep and frustration and fractured relations, and Paul couldn't go figure out where to go. He didn't intend to start Philippians, but God did. And so Paul, he's a wise and old hand at this. He goes, I get it. This is how God works. So this suffering, yes, my career, the the church playing, the desires, I'm being saved in the midst of all that. Now here's the question we have to ask. 
Does this mean that when, when bad things happen to Christians, that's the way we are being purified? That's how God's purifying you. Now, to be clear, sometimes God purifies us, and we get what we want, too. Those are the best, right? I'm not saying that anytime anything good happens, it's not God. That's not my point. I'm just saying this is what we got to deal with. So don't hear that. But, but does that always mean that when something hard happens, we're being purified because the reality is you've seen this not happen in people's lives. Right? You have seen Christians where this didn't take place. They, they didn't come up to you and say, in community group, I just so rejoiced that the very thing I was hoping for my whole life got taken away from me. Ah, this is great! They never do that, not all the time. A lot of times you've seen people get mad at God and maybe sometimes walk away. Well, if God loves me, how come this? These things I wanted, I, I only wanted this. Why would not give it to me? So while I'm saying here, Paul is actually saying that I'm actually being saved because of my dreams come crashing down, that doesn't always happen because it's not automatic. And this is really important, so let me just say this. When your dreams are dashed and your hopes come crashing down, what determines whether or not you are being saved you being refined into gold or crushed or, and devastated depends upon your definition of life. What determines whether or not you are being saved like Paul and being refined and becoming the man or woman that, that God wants you to be or you become crushed, devastated, embittered depends and is determined by your definition of life. It's not your circumstances that affect your joy. It's the definition of life that affect your joy. And Paul says in verse 21, what is his definition of life? If you've been a Christian, you know this verse. He says then, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul says, Christ is my life. It's, it's not my career as a church planner. It's not my hopes and my aspirations and my dreams. Christ, he's my life. Yes, it would have been great it would have been wonderful to have my plans work out, but it's better that Christ be honored. Yes, I would have liked the success I desire. There was nothing inherently ungodly about that, but I want to want Christ more than anything. You know, it's, we talked about last week, is Christ useful to you or beautiful to you? Well, this is a great example of how we know, how you can tell whether he's useful or beautiful. Because when it all comes crashing down, you say, but Christ... I didn't follow him because he'd make things work out. I followed him because he's beautiful. In my study, I, I don't know where I got it from. I just wrote it down, and I have it pinned on my board, so I look at it just about every week. Beautifully captures what, what I want to be able to say, what I think Paul is saying, is that I want to love Christ more than anything this life can give me. And I want to love Christ more than anything death can take from me. So our joy is not dependent on the circumstances of our life. Our joy is rooted in our definition of life. Friends, if, if your joy is, is ultimately in your career, there's always going to be somebody younger, smarter, cheaper than you that the company can hire, and then you're done, right? If your joy is in your family and that's everything to you, you know, the reality is one day your kids will grow up, they won't need you like they did, or there might be a, a, some estrangement in the family and, and things, you move away and that's taken from you too. 
If your joy is in being young and healthy, just wait a little while, that's all gonna go away, right? It's a fleeting, it's a death sentence, we know that. I mean, this used to be brown just a couple years ago. But Paul is saying, look, my joy is not dependent on the circumstances, my joy is dependent on the definition, and Christ is life. Why would you want to root your joy in something that can be so easily taken from you, but we do it all the time? Root your joy in something that's unassailable, uh, immovable, something unbreakable that can be never taken away, and that is Christ and his purposes and his kingdom. Friends, so often we see it every day in our lives if we just are opening our eyes to the reality behind the reality. People, even Christians, are grounding their joy in the circumstances of life rather than the definition of life. And what Paul says, for to me, to live is Christ and die can be gain. Think about how radical that is as Christians. The the most horrific thing that you can imagine apart, you know, in this world if you don't know God and the gospel is death, the end of all things. And Paul says, that's gain. Well, if death is gain, then you're untouchable. Let's pray that we could be those kinds of people. Come back next week and we'll jump into more of what Paul says in verses 21 to 26. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel And Lord, help us to be a people who repent of making circumstances our joy. Help us to make Christ our joy. Help us to define our lives, not by circumstances, but by Christ himself. Thank you that in your wisdom you gave to one another the local church where when we forget this, we can be reminded by others and encourage one another along that path where we can sing these truths. Help us to sing with our minds, not just with our emotions, to engage in the truths that can transform our lives. So that we, Lord, when, when inevitably things go sideways and, and everything comes crashing down around us, we won't be crushed. We won't be knocked down. And we can understand that this is how you work. And as long as we get a glimpse like Joseph, like Esther, like Paul, like the apostles, like the early church, like Christians have done through the years, as long as we get a glimpse, we know we'll be okay because Christ is our life. And to die is truly gain. And we thank you for it. In his name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.